0: Prior to that, I had been a part of a singing group. And so I was like performing at the House of Blues and doing things like that. I was still doing theater. I had done an independent film or two at the time and um, had really decided that I was kind of living on the fence and I really wanted to fully live for God. And so I signed up to go to seminary. Um, I was working at Oakdale and um, things of that nature. But every now and then on the weekend, um, at this point, I was also doing young adult ministry at Oakdale as well. But every now and then on the weekend, maybe a Friday night, I find myself in a club or something kind of hanging out. And my rationale for going was like, oh, well, you know, my old singing group is performing and so I want to go support and be supportive of what they're, you know, what they were doing. And there was this young lady I'll never forget. Her name was Jillian Clark. She was a member of Oakdale Covenant Church and she had grown up there. And I remember one of the first times that I had gone out, uh, I saw her at the club and she said, hey. Hey, Reverend Sanders, how you doing? What are you doing here? I was like, oh, I'm just hanging out, listening to some music. And it was kind of, you know, a brief conversation and that was the end of it. A couple weeks later, I'm at another club, hanging out with my former singer group, listening to some music, just kind of being a wildflower. And I see Jillian Clark again. And she's like, hey, Reverend Sanders, how you doing? You know, <laughs> what are you doing here? This is, you know, good to see you. And I'm like, oh, just, you know, hanging out, listening to some music. And it was kind of an awkward conversation that second time. Because I could tell that she was starting to uh, formulate some opinions. And then several weeks later, I was out again (laughs) at another club, listening to some music. And lo and behold, I see Jillian Clark again. And finally, she said to me, she's like, you know what, Reverend Sanders, and you know like you were in trouble when people kind of like throw your title in front, kind of like Reverend. And it's like, you know, Reverend Sanders, like you're in the clubs just as much as I am. Like, what's up with that? And I instantly felt like this sense of conviction. It wasn't to say that I was doing anything wrong per se, but what I realized was that the the place that God had called me to, the position that God had put me in, came with a certain level of responsibility and a certain level of sacrifice. And my presence in some of these places was starting to muddy the water for some folks. And so here it was, this young adult who I was doing Bible study with and discipleship with. um, And it was starting to confuse her because every time she was out in the street, hanging out, doing stuff, she was seeing one of her pastors out. And for me, I had this instant moment of conviction. And in in a a brief moment, like I almost felt judged, but then I realized that it wasn't that she was judging me, but she was holding me accountable to the role that I had. One of the first thoughts that I think that guides this text for us today is that there's a difference between accountability and judgment. There's a difference between accountability and judgment. See, oftentimes uh, we confuse the two because of the conviction that we feel when it happens. Because judgment essentially demonizes or uh, convicts in a way that only God can do. But accountability really calls us back to being the person that God has called us to be. And the ways and the standards by which we are held accountable come from the places and things that God has called us to. And all of us should be held accountable to something. There's an accountability that you have when you become a parent. There's accountability that you have to your spouse. There's accountability that you have to your children. There's accountability that we hold as ministers of the gospel or lay leaders or members of this church. There's accountability that we have for the jobs that we have, both professional and volunteer. There are standards that we are called to have. And accountability what it does is it constantly reminds us, here is the standard that we're supposed to be living into, and here's where we are. And so oftentimes, we tend to shy away from accountability because it's this constant reminder of the way that we might be falling short, and it doesn't feel good. One of the things that uh, Pete Cazero talks about in his book was that one of the defining moments for him was when his wife, held him accountable when she told him, like, listen, I'm leaving you. I'm leaving the church. I don't want to be a part of the church where you are a pastor because the way that you are living doesn't match up to the call that you have. And how sobering of a moment is it when the people closest to you are calling you to accountability and you recognize or realize that maybe you are falling short, that maybe something is wrong. When we look at the text today today, one of the things that we realize is that David was called to be king of Israel. But being the king of Israel was not the same as being the king of the other nations. God was calling the king of Israel when he when he created the monarchy. The kings of Israel didn't have a free pass to do whatever they wanted to do. Because ultimately, like the king that served as the king of Israel, the king of the people still had to answer to God. And so the way that they lived, the way that they ruled, were still held up against a very godlike standard because ultimately the king of Israel was just the voice of God to the people. And so there was power that came with the role, there was authority that came with the role, but the power and authority was not ultimate because ultimately the king had to still make sure that the people were taken care of. And so not only was Israel called to be set apart, not only was Israel called to live differently as a people, but also the kings were called to live differently as well. And God could not have the king of his people serving and acting like the rest of the other kings. Because what good is it to be a people who is set apart? What good is it to be a king who is set apart when, it, when, when how you rule and how you live looks the same Is everybody else. It's kind of like our faith. What good is it to be people of faith? What good is it to associate ourselves and our identity with Christian faith if how how we live looks similar to the rest of the world around us? And that's why God gave us free will and gave us choice, because we are choosing to be held accountable to a certain standard. The reason why God didn't force salvation on us or force relationship with Jesus Christ on us is because it had to be a choice that we make every day to live according to God's will. It's not easy. And we don't do it alone. It's part of the reason why we have the church, because we're called into community with each other to live out our faith. And so David finds himself in a situation that was not fitting for the king of Israel. But as we jump into the text, the one other thing that I want to point out is that how we respond to being accountable is a sign of our spiritual maturity. When when, when, when your spouse holds you accountable to something that you should or should not be doing, how we respond is a is, is, is an indicator of how mature we are emotionally and spiritually. Do we get defensive when we're held accountable? Do we get angry? How do we respond? And we'll talk a little bit more about response next week. But it, it kind of sets the frame for this. Because what you see in uh, uh, verse, t- chapter 12, verse 1, is this. It says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there was two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. But it starts off by saying the Lord sent Nathan. If you read chapters 10 and chapters 11, you see there's a lot of sending going on. In chapter 10, David is sending his, man, his men to fight the Amorites. And then in chapter 11, you see, uh, and we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks, but David is sending messages because he saw a woman he thought was attractive. Hey, go find out who she is. There's a lot of sending going back and forth. And David is doing this sending from the authority of his role as king. From his human authority, David had the power to send and people responded because he was king. And so in the midst of his power, he was sending. And in chapter 10, you saw that he was sending within the realm of his authority. He was he was doing the right thing. He was standing up for his people. But you see in chapter 11, some of the things that he was sending for were outside of the scope. And he was beginning to abuse his authority and power as king. And we'll get back to that in a couple of weeks. And so you see then here in chapter 12, verse 1, there was somebody else that had to do some sending. And that person was God. And it says that God sent Nathan. And I don't know about you, but when it comes to sending, I hope when God is sending something for me, it's not correction, but it's blessing. But right in this moment, David needed a reminder. And it says that the Lord... Sent Nathan. The Lord sent Nathan, Nathan the prophet. One of the things that we have to um, get accustomed to is not shying away from those relationships that God sends to us to make us better. Accountability is rough, seeing ourselves is rough. I don't know about you, but one of the the biggest relationships of accountability that I have in my life is my wife. (laughs) Because before I got married, I thought I was perfect, right? My saying before I got married is like I'm three bad habits away from being perfect. That's what I used to always say. Until I got married and I'm reminded every day in some shape, form, or fashion that I constantly fall short of the mark. And this is not in the sense that's like demeaning or belittling, but it's just this reminder that I always have growing to do. It's always this reminder that there is something about the way that I communicate and engage and do life could be better and could be more Christ-like. And so we should not shy away when God sends us people and relationships that challenge us to be the best version of ourselves that we can possibly be. So it says that the Lord since Nathan. Nathan the prophet. So that should be an indicator that something was about to happen. David is sitting on the throne. He's sitting in the throne and a prophet comes in. And he says to David, he says, hey, king, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and one poor. He says the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. Says he raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. First thing that stands out to me in this section right here is just the the the, the shallow relationship that the rich man had with his sheep. Says he has hundreds of sheep, but then when it begins to talk about. The, the poor man that had the one U lamb, it talked about like how much he cared for it, how he raised it, how it was a part of his family. There was this depth in relationship that the rich man had with, that the poor man had with the sheep. And the reason that I believe Nathan used uh, this parable, of this story, because there was imagery in it that David could recognize. Because remember, before David was a king, David was a shepherd. Before David was commanding armies of hundreds of thousands of men, he was the the young man who took a sling shot and five smooth stones and he killed Goliath. So David, once a poor man, once a poor man who cared for sheep, is now drawn into this story because it connected with him in a certain way. You know, the funny thing about the people that God sends to us to hold us accountable, they understand who we are, and how we think. They understand the things that are important to us, so they have a they have a certain way of being able to connect with us when they need to communicate deep truths. I'll bring up another story with my wife. About a year ago, I didn't realize that there was stuff happening in me. Uh, one of the things that I've always loved to do was preach. And I was preaching a lot, but it wasn't, I wasn't finding the joy in it anymore, and I didn't know that anybody noticed. I kind of thought I was doing my thing, and I was preaching, and I was, you know, just kind of hiding out. But I was kind of struggling on the inside. And my wife pulled me to the side one day. and She said, "You know, Leslie, because she's actually the only person that calls me Leslie. I think she does it. On, <laughs> I think <laughs> I think she does it on purpose. Like she refused to call me Xavier." right? I want y'all to hold her accountable to that. Um, but she's like, Leslie, you know, you're not preparing for your sermons like you used to. You're not studying the way that you used to. You know, you used to like look at the Greek and the Hebrew and you used to read multiple commentaries like, She started naming all these different things that I didn't know that she had noticed. And she said, and I'm not saying that the stuff is bad, but it's just like you don't you don't seem to go about it. You don't seem to enjoy it the way that you did. And instantly I felt, bad and partially because I cared so much about the word of God and how it was communicated for me what it felt like is that I was doing a disservice to the people that I was preaching to because I wasn't preparing the way that I used to but one of the things that it did was it showed me that there was something in my life that was off kilter there was something that was still in my joy there was something that was still in my passion and something had to change and that was when I began to start looking at okay well Leslie what's happening in you that needs to be worked on. And so much like Nathan, my wife understood the the language that she needed to use and the things that she needed to do to make me kind of wake up. And so Nathan is is using this imagery of a sheep to communicate to David a deep truth that he was so embroiled in his sin, he couldn't still see what Nathan was trying to do. So it says, so, so now a traveler came to the rich man But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had pain. So it says that David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times because he did such a thing and had no pity. Isn't it funny how easy it is for us to notice when other people are falling short? Isn't it funny how easy it is for us to see other people's mistakes, but we can often feel to see them in ourselves? I know sometimes I can come home and I'll be like, oh, who left the, who, who didn't put the dishes up? Whose shoes are these by the front door? Who did this? And I'm like, in a rampage, because I can sometimes be a E freak. And Brandy will just say, Let's see, those are your shoes. <laughs> it's like, oh, great. It's, it's, and, it, and, and it's in, in those moments where we, you know, begin to see that it, it is easy to point out everybody else's flaws but it's hard to see ours and so David now enraged by this story as a former shepherd knows how important it was that 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 poor man how important that one little sheep he had was and he sees that the injustice has been done and he pronounces his judgment still not realizing that he was the person and so what Nathan got was David's unfiltered response of how this situation should be handled. How he is king should respond to this injustice. But one of the other beautiful things in this passage is as I look at the imagery of a lamb and thinking about how the sacrifice of this one lamb saved the other lambs from being slaughtered. I couldn't help but think about the imagery of the lamb that we call Jesus Christ, who was sacrificed so we didn't have to face the results of our sins. The lamb that was slain so that we could be forgiven. The lamb, the only Son of God who he sacrificed, who he gave up so that we could be reconnected and redeemed in him. And so the imagery for me is not lost in this passage as we see this sacrifice. And so as David proclaims this burning anger, this man must surely die. I'm reminded that the wages of sin is death. And that ultimately, like the price that many of us should pay for our sins, big or small, is eternal separation from God. But because the lamb was slain, we don't have to be separated from him, but we have opportunity for new life in Christ. And so as David makes his proclamation of the punishment, Nathan does something very powerful and something very simple. He says, you are the man. Imagine how David felt after hearing this story and burning with anger, Recognized there was a need for something to be done, that there was a price to be paid, that there was justice to be served. And in four words, hearing the prophet say to him, you are the man. This is what you deserve, king. King of Israel who was called by God to serve his people. King of Israel who was called by God to be his voice, to be his hands and feet, to protect, to serve, to care. King, you are the man. I wonder how it felt. I wonder how it feels to us in those moments when we recognize that we have fallen short of the places and things that God has called us to. When we failed as parents. When we failed as husbands and wives. When we failed to live up to the call of Christ. The beauty is that we don't face condemnation because of it. Because there has been the lamb that was sacrificed for us. So even when we fall short, God doesn't see a sinner. God doesn't see a fallen king. God doesn't see somebody who missed the mark. What he sees is somebody that is covered by his son, Jesus Christ. And so Nathan says to David, you are the man. Brothers and sisters, my question for us today is this. I want you to write these down. I want you to kind of spend some time this week reflecting over these things. Because I realize at any given moment, any given sermon, any given conversation, a person either finds themselves in a place where this this the, 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 the thought topic is new and they're wrestling with it. Or maybe it's the place that you've been and God has pulled you from this place and you Um, are able to look back and reflect and say, hey, I remember when I was there. Or maybe this might be a place that you're coming into. So I want you to ask yourselves three questions. The first one is this. Who in your life is able to call you out? When you are not living up to the person that God has called you to be, who in your life has the authority and ability to speak? Who are the Nathans in your life? Who has the person say, like, hey, dude, no? That's, you know, that's not what you should be doing. No, I'm not, I'm not judging you, but I'm reminding you. The second question I want you to ask is, how do you respond when this happens? When you are being held accountable to the standards that God has called you to, how do you respond? And this one is deeply personal, but I also want you to reflect this week: Are there things in your life that need to be uncovered? Are, are there things that are buried? Are there things that you are desperately trying to hide? Are there things that you that you need to face that you don't want to face and sometimes these things are the very things that you need to face in order to have the emotional and spiritual freedom that you need to live fully into the person that God has called you to be. Because Christ-centered accountability does two things. Christ-centered accountability shows us a clear picture of who we are now. So David was king. David was a man after God's own heart. David was a great king. But in this moment, he was not being the person that he was called to be. And so when Nathan confronts him and says, you are that man, that accountability was showing David a picture of David. This is who you are. And so those relationships that we have should give us a picture of the people that who we are now. But the second thing that it does is this. It calls us back to the person that we are supposed to be. And when accountability happens and it's is Christ-centered, it calls you back. It centers you. It calls you back to the people that you are called to be. When we are confronted with truth, how do we respond? When we are confronted with truth, how do we respond? Let's pray. Gracious and Holy Father, It's not fun when we get a reality check. Doesn't always feel good when we realize that we are falling short. But what's bigger than our egos, Lord, is the life that you have called us to, both individually and collectively, because we know that you have called us to be world changers. The Lord, and oftentimes the thing that keeps us from living into the call on our lives is the stuff that is buried beneath, the stuff that we want to hide from and So the Lord, I pray that each and every person in this room has a person or persons uh, that they uh can hold them accountable and speak truth to them in a way that they understand that causes transformation. Because we are wanting to constantly be transformed people in order to transform the world around us. In your Son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen.